You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 72, The Experiment. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway. Over the last few episodes, we've delved into Napoleon's domestic policies. With France finally at peace... Bonaparte was able to devote all his energies to an agenda of reform, national unity, and political consolidation. We've mostly talked about specific policies on this reform agenda, the Civil Code, the Concordat, and his struggles to bring important institutions like the legislature and the army under the umbrella of the Napoleonic regime. We could keep going with this discussion almost indefinitely. As we've seen, Napoleon was tremendously energetic. He had an opinion about almost everything, and he was not shy about getting personally involved in the nitty-gritty details of policymaking. Now that he had nearly absolute political power, the only real limits on Napoleon's involvement in every facet of administration were his time, energy, and level of interest. To take one example... Bonaparte helped lead a total overhaul of education during this period, laying the foundations of the modern French school system. This involved the first introduction of what we would call public high schools. Napoleon himself handled the appointment of the heads of each school. Try to imagine your country's president or prime minister reading resumes to make hiring decisions about individual high school principals. Not even the most detail-oriented modern leader would stoop to that level of micromanagement. But Napoleon had a clear vision of the type of men he wanted running these schools, and so he saw to it that vision was carried out. There are many similar stories, that's just one example. Several historians have pointed out that it was in this period, the early consulate, that Napoleon first visited much of the country he now ruled. Napoleon knew the southeast pretty well. He had spent plenty of time at Toulon, for instance, and obviously in Corsica. He knew Paris by now, and had traveled the route between the south and the capital many times, sometimes stopping midway at Lyon, France's second city. But the center, west and north of the country, were mostly uncharted territory for Napoleon when he took office as first consul in 1799. He had seen Egypt and Syria, been all over northern Italy and over the Alps into Austria, but had never visited Bordeaux or seen Normandy. He began to remedy this almost as soon as he took office. 
In his early years in power, Napoleon was constantly back and forth from Paris on some tour of the provinces. This was part of what Bonaparte called amalgamation, the process of making the entire country feel like they were represented and included in his regime, and it contributed to his public image as a vigorous man of action, who did not rest as long as there was work to be done for the public good. Today, this is one of the oldest tricks in any political hacks playbook. How many times have you seen a politician looking awkward wearing a hard hat at some inane photo op at a construction site, or giving a major policy speech at a factory in the middle of nowhere for some reason? But what seems like a cheap stunt to us was still relatively fresh at the dawn of the 19th century. Bonaparte's supporters believed he was everywhere at once, and saw his hand in every positive development in the country. They may have actually had a point, as we've discussed, with Napoleon's obsessive perfectionism and overpowering work ethic, he really was personally involved in all sorts of enterprises that you might think would have been beneath his notice. But this wasn't just about the provinces seeing Napoleon, it was also about Napoleon seeing the provinces. There was a lot of regional diversity within France. That was especially true in Napoleon's day. The north is different from the south, the east is different from the west. Neighboring provinces might have entirely different social structures, and even economies. The local peasants all spoke different dialects. As we've discussed in past episodes, before the Revolution, different places in France were even ruled by different legal codes and systems of government. To generalize wildly, these places in western and northern France, which Napoleon was now visiting for the first time, tended to be less reliant on agriculture than the south and east of the country. Commerce and early proto-manufacturing played a much bigger role in these parts of the country, and that was reflected in the culture and social structure. As a result, Napoleon perceived these places as far more dynamic and forward-thinking than the old-fashioned agricultural south, the region he was most familiar with. Again, speaking generally, these places had recovered better from the political, social, and economic upheavals of the 1790s than the rest of the country. Now that peace had lifted the British blockade, the port towns on the Atlantic and Channel coasts were thriving once again. Some towns and cities had not only rebounded from the hard years of war and revolution, but had actually surpassed their pre-revolutionary levels of prosperity. These were the types of places, and the types of economies, which produced a lot of the types of people who supported Bonaparte politically. Small-time local elites, like business owners, lawyers, bureaucrats, and merchants. Napoleon shared a lot of these people's values, and saw their meritocratic, highly organized world of commerce and law as the future. And he was right. Liberal ideas were so strong in these places because liberalism fits so well with the emerging forces of European capitalism. When you combine rational systems of administration and meritocracy ushered in by the revolution, under a strong government capable of maintaining order and promoting private enterprise, like Napoleon's government, 
You have exactly the conditions that early proto-capitalists believed were necessary to unleash economic growth. So this was more than just an affinity. These people saw that it was in their interest to support Napoleon, and they took their interests very seriously. Bonaparte was not alone in his desire to cultivate these sectors of the economy. Almost every European country made at least some effort to foster these early engines of capitalism. You might compare it to the tech industry today. Almost every place has at least a few politicians who dream of turning some city or suburb into the next Silicon Valley, which they believe will ensure their constituents get a piece of the economy of the future. Not to mention, they like the idea of having a wealthy tax base, and a class of skilled, educated workers, and capital investors, which the tech industry almost always brings with it. Napoleon and his peers saw industries like international shipping and textile manufacturing in much the same way, not only as sources of tax revenue and constituencies in their own right, but as important parts of the grander project of building a strong, modern society. Many people, both admirers and detractors, see Napoleon as the avatar of this new class of people, created by the emerging new economic system of global capitalism. Which is a bit ironic, given that Napoleon is just now really coming into contact with this world for the first time, in his early 30s, when he's already in power. Napoleon was not the perfect proto-capitalist political leader. In one important respect, Bonaparte was actually deeply skeptical of the new economic order. Napoleon had an inherent, reflexive distrust of high finance and speculation. This view was quite common among French people of his class and generation. You might even describe this skepticism as conventional wisdom. It's not hard to see why Napoleon felt this way. He had a deep aversion to anything unpredictable or unstable, and the world of finance is nothing if not uncertain. That was especially true in Napoleon's time, when high finance as we know it had barely come into being and was almost entirely unregulated. Many standard business practices of Napoleonic-era finance would today be considered insider trading, selective disclosure, or even outright fraud. Even in our modern, highly systematized era of finance, there's still no shortage of crimes and abuses, and no shortage of people who consider even law-abiding financiers as little better than criminals. So, you can only imagine what people's attitudes were like back then, when not only were the abuses worse, but the very concept was still new and unfamiliar. I think this passage sums up Napoleon's views on finance quite well. Quote, It seems the price of stocks in Paris is everybody's business except that of the real owners. The so-called buyers and sellers do nothing, in fact, but make bets with one another that such will be at such a time the state of the market. Each of them, in order to make a living, tries to direct the policies of the whole of Europe towards the end he desires. Each invents, comments on, or misrepresents the facts, penetrates the councils and cabinets of ministers, the secrets of courts, makes ambassadors speak, decides peace and war, stirs up and misleads public opinion. 
The stockbrokers themselves take advantage of their position and buy and sell on their own account. Often, their interests even become opposed to those of their so-called clients. Public morals alone would require the suppression of this abuse. The rights of liberty end where abuses commence. End quote. I think that gets to the heart of Napoleon's contradictory views on the economy. In some ways, he was an arch-capitalist who correctly saw international commerce and manufacturing as the wave of the future. He also understood the way his political program and ideology was tied to these new economic developments. All of which makes his rather naive denunciations of the stock market even more bizarre. Essentially, Napoleon wanted to have his cake and eat it too. He wanted to harness the dynamism of early capitalism, without surrendering any economic decision-making to the market. In essence, he wanted capitalism, but no capitalists. However, Napoleon didn't see the tension between his support of so-called honest business and his mistrust of the alchemy of high finance. As I mentioned in an early episode, the very concept of economics as a field of study was barely in its infancy. Very few people in this era had any kind of coherent views on the economy. I'll leave it to you to debate the degree to which things have changed since then. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Napoleon spent most of the summer of 1802 at his country estate, Malmaison, returning to Paris for Bastille Day, July 14th. There was the usual pageantry in the capital, fireworks, parties, parades, and public spectacles. However, there were some troubling reports from the frontiers, where hundreds of thousands of Republican troops were still under arms, keeping watch over France's borders. During the Army of Italy's Bastille Day celebrations, a large number of men began to chant, Long live citizen Robespierre, alongside the pre-approved pro-government slogans. At a Bastille Day feast for the officers of the Army of the Rhine, the assembled guests drank toasts to the French people and the Revolution, but left their glasses on the table when someone called for a drink to the First Consul. Clearly, those hard feelings among the officer corps, which we discussed last episode, were still present, even several months after the infamous Capucinade of Easter. The summer of 1802 also saw the first celebration of a new holiday. It was not yet officially marked on the calendar, but August 15th was almost a replay of Bastille Day. Fireworks lit up the skies, and cities and towns all over France marked the occasion with public celebrations. 
Astute listeners might remember that Napoleon was born on August 15, 1769. The First Consul's birthday was now a de facto public holiday, just like the King's birthday had been over a decade earlier. All of this creeping monarchism was beginning to be noticed. Around this same time, both the Russian and British ambassadors informed their respective governments that Bonaparte had become a king in all but name, and should be considered as such when it came to foreign policy. As I look back over the last few episodes, I see a pattern emerging. I explain that Napoleon is passing another landmark on the road to monarchy, and then we talk about how angry it made some group of liberals or republicans. That is worth mentioning. Napoleon was quite deliberately shifting away from the left and towards the center, in a bid to reconcile conservatives with his regime. It's inevitable that a move like this would alienate some people on the left. That's how politics works. But I worry I've given the impression that there was some kind of widespread resistance to Napoleon's regime, or a serious public outcry against this slow slide towards monarchism. In fact, liberals and republicans were a minority of the population. Those who opposed Napoleon were probably a minority of republicans, and those who actually spoke out against the regime were an even smaller minority. As we've seen, a lot of this opposition was not much more than complaining, with maybe the occasional purely symbolic gesture, like General Massena's outburst at Easter Mass or the minor disturbances on Bastille Day, which we just discussed. These people were unhappy with the political direction of the regime, but it seems most of them were not unhappy enough to actually do anything about it. We've spent so much time discussing the Republican opposition because they were disproportionately influential, and because it's an important part of the story of Bonaparte's political transformation from a Jacobin revolutionary who participated in factional politics, to a national figurehead who attempted to stand above all factions. But I don't want to give the impression that these opposition views were representative of the broader population. The liberal opposition seems to have been out of step with the rest of France. As I've mentioned in past episodes, we are on slippery ground when we talk about public opinion in this era. Polling simply did not exist. And this isn't just a question of measurement. There were also no real mass media informing and shaping the opinions of average people. This makes it hard to talk about the views of large groups of people in aggregate. Very few people in France were all working with the same baseline assumptions and information so it's hard to compare their views to one another. But with those caveats, we can pretty safely say that Napoleon was popular in this period. Probably very popular. The regime was generally perceived as functioning well and keeping its promises. And, for the most part, this perception was accurate. At least as far as the proverbial man on the street was concerned. In any political system, there will always be dissenters. Even with Napoleon's inclusive policies, no political tent is big enough to fit every single person in an entire country of 30 million. But at this stage, 
the opposition were a few lonely voices in the political wilderness. The radical Republicans had lost all connection to the wider public, and far-right reactionaries had been literally driven out of the country and were living in impotent exile, dependent on the charity of France's rivals. The vast majority of the people of France would remember the consulate as a happy time, a much-needed period of tranquility and recovery when the state was working hard for the common good. Many people would look back on this as a golden age, even those with ambivalent feelings about Napoleon himself. A few dozen episodes from now, you might find yourself wondering why people still followed and believed in Bonaparte after so many years of blood and struggle. These happy years of the consulate are a big reason. Even in the darkest days of the Napoleonic Wars, many French people continued to hold out the hope that Bonaparte could forge another honorable peace, turn his energies back to his domestic agenda, and restart the glory years of the consulate. In retrospect, we know that was not to be. Once the war restarted, the state of the European geopolitical scene made a peaceful settlement very unlikely, if not impossible. But when it comes to the vagaries of international politics, what's obvious in hindsight is often impossible to predict in the moment. All they knew was that peace had seemed unattainable before, but Napoleon had managed to make it happen. Bonaparte seemed to make a habit of doing the impossible, Who was to say the great miracle worker couldn't do it again? There's a lot more detail we could go into about this golden age. You might remember the episode on Napoleon's conquest of Malta, in which he totally remade the social and political fabric of the island in the space of only a few days, obviously transforming a small island with under a 100,000 residents is a very different task from transforming a sprawling agricultural nation of over 30 million. But Napoleon had far more time and seemingly limitless energy to throw into the task. We could spend years just going through the various new government initiatives launched and new institutions founded during this period. And we will return to some of them, but for now, I'd like to move on with the narrative. It's been a while since we checked in on foreign affairs. The last big news on this front was the Treaty of Amiens, signed in the spring of 1802. If you'll recall, the treaty had been the subject of intense negotiations, and very nearly hadn't happened. The people of France and Britain were lucky that the task fell to General Lord Charles Cornwallis and Joseph Bonaparte, who almost instantly formed a strong working relationship and were able to bridge the gap between the two powers and secure peace. But this was a strange kind of peace treaty from the very beginning. Typically, there is very little doubt as to what factors lead to warring parties to begin negotiations. Developments on the battlefield, or changes in geopolitical conditions, make one side's position untenable, and they sue for peace. Think of the end of the first Italian campaign. Napoleon's army got within striking distance of Vienna, 
and nearby Austrian forces were incapable of offering serious resistance. Given the course of the war and their own domestic political position, the Habsburgs were unwilling to contemplate the loss of their capital, and so they sued for peace. The cause and effect is quite obvious, even to a casual observer. There is no such simple, cut-and-dry explanation for the Treaty of Amiens. At the start of negotiations, the war was in a stalemate, and that was unlikely to change in the foreseeable future. Both sides had the capability to harass one another and damage one another's economies, but neither had the means to attempt a killing blow. So there was no great battle or historic campaign which brought the two sides to the negotiating table. There wasn't even a single economic trend or social or political force you could point to. Rather, it was a whole host of smaller factors, none of which on their own would have made much of a difference. But when you combined these smaller factors with the exhaustion and expense of a decade of conflict, and threw in the human factors, like the friendship between Lord Cornwallis and Ambassador Bonaparte, there was just barely enough weight on the peace side of the scales to tip the balance and bring the treaty to fruition. From the very beginning, policymakers on both sides understood that this was unusual. King George III of Great Britain called it, quote, experimental, close quote, which I think hits the nail on the head. Neither side disbanded their large wartime armies. Britain kept well over 100,000 regulars under arms, and hundreds of thousands of part-time civilian militiamen kept up their training in the British home islands. They did order the demobilization of the expensive Royal Navy, but this was soon stopped. In France, exact numbers are hard to come by, as we discussed last episode, but there were certainly hundreds of thousands of men in the Republican armies. I've seen high estimates that place the number over 400,000. New regiments were still being raised, and new men were being inducted into old regiments. Clearly, neither side trusted that this experimental peace would endure. Both France and Britain approached their treaty obligations almost the way a modern country would an arms control deal trying to verify their rival was in compliance before making any serious moves to meet their own commitments. The trouble was, this was not spelled out in the treaty, so both sides read their rival's hesitation as bad faith, which led both sides to drag their heels even more, creating a vicious cycle in which each side condemned the other for failing to meet their obligations and, in retaliation, reduced their own level of compliance. Relations between the two powers quickly began to spiral downward, away from peace and understanding towards acrimony and mutual recrimination, and, ultimately, conflict. This dynamic was most obvious in the central Mediterranean. At the end of the war, France held important bases in southern Italy, and the British held the island of Malta. Under the terms of the treaty, the French were to return control of those bases to the Kingdom of Naples, a British ally, 
and the British were to return Malta to the Knights of St. John, currently in exile. Bonaparte laid out his position in a letter, quote, A more serious contest has arisen with England. Under the provisions of the Treaty of Amiens, she was held to evacuate Malta within three months, and France, on her side, to evacuate Toronto within the same period. I have faithfully evacuated Toronto. On inquiring why Malta was not evacuated, I received the reply that there was yet no Grand Master of the Knights. That was adding a clause to the treaty. A Grand Master has been appointed. I notified the British cabinet to this effect. Then, England raised the mask and informed me that she wished to hold Malta for seven years. End quote. Of course, as you might imagine, the British had their own side to this story, and it looked very different. They claimed they had no choice but to continue the occupation of Malta to provide some check on Napoleon's continued ambitions. The British were convinced Bonaparte still harbored designs on Egypt. The French expedition to the Middle East in 1798 had taken the British by surprise and made them realize their lines of communication to India were quite tenuous and vulnerable. They wanted to avoid a repeat at all costs, and that meant they were especially cautious and conservative in the Mediterranean, which they now perceived as a weak link in the chain which bound India to the empire. It's a good case study of the spiraling commitments of imperialism. Britain's position in southern Asia was now one of the main driving factors of their foreign policy in southern Europe, around 4,000 miles or 6,500 kilometers away. Their logic was sound. The central Mediterranean really was the gateway to the Middle East, and the Middle East was the gateway to India. Napoleon himself had often described his campaign in Egypt as an indirect attack on India. Fifty years earlier, when British East India Company forces secured hegemony over India, I doubt anyone involved would have believed Britain's interests in the region would soon be dictating policy towards places like Naples and Malta. But the logic of empire has a momentum of its own. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. While the French were complaining about Malta, the British had their own concerns about French policy in Europe. 
in particular in two of the most important revolutionary sister republics, the Batavian Republic and the Helvetic Republic, formerly known as the Netherlands and Switzerland. You might recall from past episodes, the French had set up revolutionary republican regimes in many of the lands they had conquered. Under the terms of the Treaty of Amiens, the British had agreed to officially recognize these as legitimate governments. So, the sister republics finally enjoyed diplomatic legitimacy on the world stage. But, that didn't necessarily translate to political legitimacy among their own people. We saw in many past episodes how hard the revolutionaries in Paris had to struggle to build stability and come to be trusted and accepted as a lawful source of authority. That was in France, where the population had watched the old regime collapse under the weight of its own incompetence and seen the revolutionaries build a movement capable of taking over control of the state. There had been no equivalent revolutionary moment in any of the sister republics. Their old regimes had not been discredited to the same degree, and their domestic radicals had never had the chance to prove themselves on the national stage. They were nobodies, swept into power by the winds of war and the connivance of a foreign occupier. Like most revolutionaries, the cliques which ruled the sister republics were a fractious bunch, with different, sometimes conflicting visions of their country's futures. So, to make a long story short, none of the governments of the sister republics really took root. None of them were able to coalesce and form a new status quo. They relied on French support to stay in office and were typically viewed, fairly or unfairly, as little more than appendages to the French occupation. The Helvetic Republic was especially unstable. The political conflicts within the regime were fierce. The Swiss revolutionaries were perhaps even more prone to scheming and backstabbing than their French counterparts. Coups and other extra-legal political maneuvers became regular fixtures of Swiss politics. Out in the countryside, the Republican regime was unpopular. In 1802, there were two different uprisings against the government. In keeping with Swiss tradition, there was one for French speakers and one for German speakers. These events are usually referred to as uprisings in historical literature, but when you look into the details, it's probably more accurate to describe them as illegal, violent protest movements, which eventually spiraled into something resembling rebellions, largely because the government was too weak and ineffective to stamp them out. They have colorful names. The one in the French-speaking regions of the country is referred to as the Bourg-la-Papi, which means the paper-burning in the local Arpitan dialect so-called because the rebels burned government documents and land deeds. The uprising in the German-speaking regions is referred to as the Stecklitkrieg, meaning the War of the Sticks, after the wooden clubs used by the insurgents. Ironically, one of the main complaints of these peasant rebels was that they still had to pay their old feudal taxes. If the Helvetic government had been truer to their principles and abolished all aspects of feudalism, this all might have been avoided. 
they may actually have won over the peasantry instead of having to call out troops to fight them. But that opportunity had long passed. Now the government needed the French to bail them out, which of course only helped confirm the widespread perception that they were nothing more than puppets. The situation in the Batavian Republic, the former Netherlands, was a bit more complicated. You might recall from our early episodes, the Netherlands had experienced their own abortive revolution in the 1780s, shortly before things kicked off in France. The Patriots, as the Dutch radicals were known, were ultimately defeated, but for a brief period of time, their movement was a legitimate threat to the state. This meant that when the French invasion swept the Patriots into power in 1795, they had some base of support within the country, and some experience of revolutionary politics already under their belts. So, perhaps it's no surprise that, generally speaking, the Batavian Republic was one of the more successful of the sister republics. But that success was only relative. The Dutch revolutionaries ran into many of the same problems as their Swiss counterparts. Instability, infighting, and lack of legitimacy. And of course, just like in every sister republic, people's perceptions of the regime were tied to their perceptions of the French occupiers. And the French were a big part of the problem in the Batavian Republic. The Netherlands was one of the richest places in Europe in this era. Its people were generally prosperous, but more than that, it was one of the most important centers of trade and finance in the entire world. France was by far the more powerful country by any measure, but they couldn't match the Dutch merchants and bankers. Now, this tremendous economic power was under French influence, which created an odd dynamic. The Batavian Republic was one of the main economic engines of the entire French sphere of influence. Much of the credit the French government needed to fund its operations came from Dutch financiers. Decisions made on the trading floors and in the cafes and merchant houses of Amsterdam and The Hague would have consequences from the English Channel to the gates of Rome and from the Pyrenees to the Swiss Alps. Without the flow of Dutch credit, Napoleon's ambitious reform agenda would grind to a halt, almost overnight. I think his regime probably would have survived, but it would have been a disaster. These are just the economic factors that made the Batavian Republic so important. Let's not forget, it was also a strategic prize, as the easiest place to launch a crossing of the English Channel. So you have all these factors, making the Batavian Republic one of the most important locations on Earth for the government in Paris. And yet, they had no direct control over it. In theory, the Batavian Republic was an independent, sovereign state, bound to France only by military alliances and treaties of friendship. This mismatch between the region's importance to the French government and the French government's level of control meant that they almost couldn't help but meddle in Dutch politics. The interests at play in the Batavian Republic were simply too important to be left to the bickering amateurs who the French had put in charge of the country. Or perhaps I'm being too charitable, 
and the French were simply too greedy and too arrogant to resist the temptation to trample all over the Batavian patriots and plunder the country for all it was worth. Whichever the case, things came to a head in late 1801. The Batavian executive had written a new constitution, which was set to be voted on in a national referendum. However, the opposition-controlled assembly was opposed to the constitution and declared the referendum illegal. It looked like the stage was set for some kind of violent showdown between the two factions, as the executive attempted to go ahead with the referendum and the legislature was determined to stop it. Around this same time, Bonaparte was having problems getting credit from his Dutch bankers, and he believed these two problems may have been linked. At the very least, the looming crisis hammered home the importance of the Netherlands. And so, Napoleon contacted the French garrison in the Batavian Republic, and ordered them to intervene and settle this dispute once and for all, in favor of the executive and the new constitution. The task fell to General Pierre Augereau, Bonaparte's old comrade from the Army of Italy. You might recall this was actually not the first time Augereau had carried out a coup d'etat for Napoleon. He had also commanded the troops who carried out the coup of Fructidor for Napoleon's friends on the Directory back in 1797. It was a dirty job, but once again, Augereau took it on without hesitation. When Batavian lawmakers arrived at the legislature on the morning of September 19, 1801, they found the doors locked and French soldiers guarding the building. The body was dissolved, opposition leaders arrested, and the constitutional referendum went ahead without a hitch. Well, almost without a hitch. As it turned out, the Constitution was soundly defeated. But turnout was so low, the Batavian executive simply declared that the 300,000 or so non-voters had given their silent agreement by not showing up, and the document was put into effect. In the grand scheme of things, these French interventions in Switzerland and the Netherlands were not much more than blips. This was a tumultuous era of history, and political instability and foreign invasion were almost routine all over Europe. However, they had a profound impact on public opinion in Britain. Tory propaganda had always maintained that Napoleon was a bloodthirsty conqueror, bent on the subjugation of the entire continent, perhaps even all of humanity. Seeing him use his armies to enforce his will on French satellite states seemed to confirm this view. William Wordsworth was so moved by the plight of the poor Swiss that he wrote a poem about them, Thought of a Briton on the Subject of Switzerland. Quote, Two voices are there. One is of the sea, one of the mountains, each a mighty voice. In both, from age to age, Thou didst rejoice. They were thy chosen music, liberty. There came a tyrant, and with holy glee thou foughtst against him, but hast vainly striven. Thou from thy alpine holds at length art driven, where not a torrent murmurs heard by thee. Of one deep bliss thine ear hath been bereft. Then cleave, O cleave, to that which is still left. For, high-souled maid, that sorrow would it be 
that mountain floods should thunder as before, and ocean bellow from his rocky shore, and neither awful voice be heard by thee. End quote. If he could defend himself, Napoleon would probably say that France was merely maintaining order in her own backyard. After all, by recognizing the radical governments of the sister republics, Britain had tacitly acknowledged that they were under French influence. In both cases, republican troops had received formal invitations from the relevant governments. But of course, that type of invitation is only as legitimate as the government that issues it. Even if some kind of intervention had been necessary to avoid anarchy, it certainly didn't look good. This news out of Switzerland and the Netherlands only contributed to troubling reports from some of the British tourists who had flocked to Paris after the Treaty of Amiens. Most of these visitors were swept away by the grandeur and dynamism of the city, but some also noticed uncomfortable trends. Almost everyone remarked on the fact that there were soldiers in uniform everywhere. More astute observers also picked up on a general martial atmosphere. Civilian government had become slightly militaristic, with titles of rank and uniforms and, of course, the unquestionable authority of an ex-general holding everything together. Almost every public celebration or event was marked with a parade of soldiers. This was on top of the military reviews, which were held almost weekly at the Tuileries Palace when Bonaparte was in Paris, and always drew a large crowd of civilian onlookers. Influential families jockeyed to get their sons posted to the most fashionable army regiments, rather than into the best schools or most desirable jobs. Some British travelers reported a chill on the freedom of speech. This might not be entirely fair. True, Napoleon had censors and secret police, but by modern standards they were quite quaint. The number of people under government surveillance was probably in the hundreds, not the thousands. Still, compared to Britain, it was harder to find dissenting views expressed in public. Part of this was the simple fact that Britain had an adversarial two-party political system, so the views of the party not in power were always considered legal and acceptable. There was no comparable dynamic in Napoleon's France. True, you could find publications and organizations of almost any stripe, liberal, centrist, or conservative. But whatever their perspective or audience, they all supported the regime. It is worth mentioning that these British tourists in Paris probably had a rosier view of British liberty than some of their countrymen back home. During the war years, Parliament had passed a whole slate of laws against so-called sedition and treason. Dissenters who found themselves outside the safe ideological boundaries of the two-party system could find themselves under arrest or subject to intimidation or mob violence. But hypocrisy has never been much of an argument against jingoism. Using these travelers' accounts and the news of aggressive French diplomacy on the continent, the conservative British press depicted Napoleonic France as little more than an armed camp, where war was always on the horizon, and it was forbidden to speak ill of the warlord. 
A sudden and profound shift was underway in British public opinion. In early 1802, they had greeted the Treaty of Amiens with an outpouring of euphoria and even pro-French sentiment. You might think back to episode 64, when the rowdy London mob carried Napoleon's envoy through the streets on their shoulders, cheering Long Live Peace and even Long Live Bonaparte. Within a matter of months, this situation was almost entirely reversed. By early 1803, war was in the air once again, and much of the public was baying for Napoleon's blood. It wasn't just average people. It's very rare to see public opinion shift this drastically without at least some help from the top, and this case was no exception. Much of the British political leadership was eager to terminate this experiment with peace and return to the fight. If you'll think back to our episodes on the lead-up to the treaty, you'll recall the British government was under a great deal of domestic pressure when they made their overtures to France. The government was pouring more and more money into a stalemated war while serious problems developed back home. There were food shortages, riots, and a whole host of partisan political controversies we don't have time to get into. The government's position had become so bad that Prime Minister William Pitt was forced to resign. The king replaced him with the pro-peace Henry Addington, and as they say, the rest is history. However, Pitt's exile to the political wilderness proved very short. The various crises which had forced him out of office suddenly seemed less urgent almost as soon as he left. After only a few months, the king, the Tory leadership, and Pitt were in discussions about bringing him back into government. In fact, it seems that Pitt was actually the one holding the cards in these conversations. The Tories were begging him to come back, and he was holding out for concessions. Pitt was widely known as an implacable opponent of France. His political brand had almost become synonymous with the war, which is a big part of the reason he was forced out during the run-up to peace. He had softened his stance a bit when the war was unpopular, but he was still considered the face of hawkish, anti-French foreign policy. For Pitt, the struggle between Britain and France was not only about great power competition, but an ideological struggle between British liberty and moderation, and French tyranny and radicalism. You can almost view Pitt's rising and falling fortunes as a measure of the British ruling class's eagerness for war with France. In our episodes on the Treaty of Amiens, I talked about what an unusual occurrence the treaty was, how many disparate trends and events had to all come together at just the right moment, to create the opening for peace. Well, those unique circumstances were now dissipating, leaving only geopolitical rivalry, ideological differences, and years of bad blood between the two powers. In the spring of 1803, the British government issued orders to the army and the navy to prepare for war. France soon followed suit. On May 18, 1803, Prime Minister Henry Addington strode into Parliament, wearing an unusual costume, 
a short, tight-fitting jacket in navy blue with bright gold trim. It was an officer's uniform of the Woodley Cavalry Volunteers, one of the many militia units raised during the invasion scares of the 1790s, in which Addington served part-time as a captain. In the parliamentary culture of the time, these types of theatrics were unusual but not unheard of. Apparently, Addington's outfit drew laughter when he first appeared, but when the House heard what he had to say, the mood turned deadly serious. The Prime Minister informed Parliament that two weeks earlier, instructions had gone out to Royal Navy posts all over the world, ordering the seizure of all French shipping, starting that day, May 18th. Britain had already committed multiple acts of aggression against France all over the high seas. Addington asked the House to ratify this order. He told them the public favored war, promising a, quote, insurrection of loyalty, end quote, in which the people would rise up of their own volition to support the struggle against Napoleon. After the pro-war propaganda offensive of the last few months, he may have been right. By striking first, Addington had put the House in an awkward position. In effect, he was asking Parliament to retroactively give their blessing to a war which had already started. But the public mood was such that not even the opposition bothered to make a fuss. The experiment with peace was over. War had returned to Europe, and would not be banished again for over a decade. I think that's a good place to stop for now. One last thing before we go, I promised I would give a shout-out to listener Alex Walsh from the UK, who helped me track down a colorful bit of detail from this episode. Thank you, Alex. Anyway, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>